Hi, my name is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Now, um, just so everyone knows, this will probably be one of the shorter shows, because I have been having some tummy trouble, and I don't want to be doing something where I'm crouching for that long, so, because my tummy's a rumbly, um, uh, because I'm almost 30, and that's what happens to me now. I used to be a tank. Now I'm a feeble man, baby. Squish rolling down the street, hoping not to die. But, um, <laughs> thanks everybody who listened to the last episode. I don't remember what I did it on because I do one of these a week and I'm going slightly crazy. And also, once again, I'm having, I'm having some tummy trouble. Um, on a place further than the universe. I had a lot of fun with that show, and I, I'm not entirely sure if I talked about it before, but um, I wanted to make sure that I did talk about it at all, so I decided that that was what the episode was going to be about, and it just kind of turned into its own cool thing. Um, but also, my tummy trouble, will, me and my troubled tummy will be going to Liberty City Anime Convention, the Liberty City Anime Convention in the Times Square Marriott, not on the day you're hearing this, which is probably Friday, but on the day after, which is this Saturday, the 18th. And I will be doing two panels, one of which is Mommy and Daddy Hate You, which is a little tour I put together of some of the real Emmy Award winnings for bad parenting in anime. And then um, that's going to happen at 1 o'clock, and I believe in panel room 3, but don't quote me on that. Um, and then I will be mounting a return of my original first, very first panel, um, which that I did last year at the same convention called Full Metal and Beyond, a exploration of disability anime, and I've added stuff to it since last year, so if you have been to that panel before i encourage you to come again if you haven't um come it's a fun time i i might throw prizes at a person who asks the question because there is a question that is almost guaranteed to happen and like we we'll cross that bridge when we come to it but i might i might have a stuffed animal to hurl at someone at some point um but that panel is all about the the concept of disability in anime and the disabled characters anime and the portrayal of disabled of disability and all this other stuff it's it's really interesting for me to do being a what i like to refer to as a alternatively able person because i am not so disabled i'm I'm certainly physically disabled, but I'm not physically disabled in a way that hindered me in doing anything. So I can do pretty much anything short of tying my shoes and a rope course in high school. But, you know, fat kids can't do that either. So there you go. Um, <laughs> um, but the gist of it is, is that I take people through di- disability and I compare it with reality and I have a lot of fun doing it. People seem to like it. So if you're interested, you know, stop by, I believe panel room four, I'm more sure on that being in panel room four 
at 6 o'clock, kind of at the end of the day, um, on the 18th as well, at Liberty City Anime Con in the Times Square Marriott Hotel. Um, and you can, at either one of those points, you can see me and my rumbly tummy, and my rumbly tummy in trouble at talking about anime stuff in the real world, not just in, in, in your headphones whispering sweet nothings to you as you do something probably totally unrelated. Because I am a nerd too. Um, but on those two notes, we will be talking about a show that I was laid up all day with my all week watching the second half of because my brain could not comprehend much with my earlier tummy troubles. We are now in like the lady later tummy troubles situation where I am functional with like a slight bellyache instead of non-functional with an extreme bellyache and I need to go to the bathroom every 20 minutes. Um, I know that's probably TMI, but hey, it's my podcast and I'll do what I want. But um, uh, so I watched the entire second half, second half of this show, just kind of trying to not think about the fact that my tummy felt like it was a pressure cooker. Um, but that show, the second half of that show, uh, the show that I watched the second half of is a little show called Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. Now, for those of you who have not seen uh, Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans, but you've seen Gundam in general, this is a little different. Because most Gundam falls under the idea of what they call UC Gundam. And UC Gundam is universe, stands for Universal Century, and that is a continuous timeline in which all of... 
all of all Gundam supposedly happens on, but all of most Gundam definitely happens on. So what that means is that you can follow it like a big epic story from period to period to period, and there are consistent characters and there are consistent scenes. Um, usually, usually spoiler. Usually, the theme is war is bad. But what's different about Iron Blood things like Iron Blood Orphans, things like Gundam Wing, things like um, G Gundam, which I did a podcast on with an old friend of mine back when I used to do this with my friend Lauren, and um, we called it, I believe, Gundam Sensitivity Training. I might post that as a bonus episode at some point because it is. It's one of the better ones, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but th- those shows ostensibly happen in the same universe, like Gundams exist, but they either f- happen so far after the events of U- of like the UC that doesn't matter, or they happen not w- with the UC not in mind. Things like Gundam Double O. Um, not and Gundam Double O is another example of it. Um, thing, but things like G Gundam don't really have a connection to the UC. Neither does something like Gundam Wing. Now, Iron Blood Orphans is a little different because while it is not technically a like UC Gundam, it supposedly takes place. Around, I believe... Uh, actually, I know, because I just watched the whole damn thing. Um, it takes place at 300 years after what they call the Calamity War. And you're meant to gather that that was kind of the original conflict in terms of, like, space battles and Gundams and crazy shit. And in this universe... Uh, War isn't necessarily a thing anymore. There are there are flare-ups, there are terrorist groups, there are space pirates, there are, you know, space mafia, and there's, like, the space police. But you don't start this show with any of those people, which is really interesting. The, what you, the people you start this show with and the people you follow throughout this show are not heroes. They are not these unlikely, like come up through the ranks and be true heroes. They, they are painted like that eventually, but you as a viewer completely understand that they are not... They are not really considered that way by who who people who pretend to be their peers because they're constantly at every turn used by just the, like, space opera politics of the show to get some character to an end somehow. And these characters belong to a group that's ultimately called Tekadin. But when you first meet, um, when you first meet them, you meet two characters primarily, and it spirals out to have a whole cast. And the two characters, two characters you're primarily concerned with, and the main character of the show is Mikazuki August. He's the main character of the show, and then there is his best friend, his like his 
his blood brother, the guy, the only person he considered to be his true family and that he is truly loyal to, a guy named Orga Iski. And Orga is this kind of hot-headed... He is very much in the mold of what you'd expect out of, like, a shonen hero. But what's interesting with him is that he... with some exception, does not act out the shonen hero things. He is he is all of the bravado without any of the muscle, if that makes any sense. But the muscle is provided by the people he has around him, primarily um, Mika, which is Mikazuki Mikazuki August's um, nickname. And Mika is this, like, cold, cold, and he he's played in Japanese and in English as, as having this, for most of, for all but a couple key points of the show, as having this flat affectation, like, he exists for one purpose, and that is to fight. And the show bears that out, and it shows you what that really means, which is really interesting. But this show... What's truly interesting about it is that there is no... There is no, there is no just cause. They present you with what could be a just cause, and they immediately dismantle it. So... Uh, we open up and kind of the first section of the show is devoted to Orga and East and Mikazuki and all the other members of what would become Tekken revolting against their owner. Because the thing I haven't mentioned yet is that these characters are all children. They're all, they're all kids and they're all these child work they're all these basically child slaves or child soldiers and they're made to work in these mines or you know defend the village from defend this mine from pirates and they are exploited and the way the ways they're exploited are they're like taught to fight they're forced to fight but then there's a last piece of this and that is a very very dangerous surgery in which they have a device implanted into their back that looks like they have almost, like, dinosaur spines, like a dinosaur spine tendril coming out from, like, the middle of, like, their upper back. And that's called the the Alea Vignana system. And basically the idea is that you're rigging up a child's spine so they can have direct feedback access to some kind of machinery. In um, the beginning of the show, it's their mobile workers, and mobile workers are these, like, kind of mobile, like, mobile, like, robot quasi-tractors that they drive around, and they use to fight off pirates and other other ne'er-do-wells or law enforcement or whatever their quote-unquote like, owners tell them to fight off. But that doesn't last for long because they end up overthrowing the 
sorry, I had to take a drink. Um, the company that laid that like claimed to them, and the way they that company like claimed to them is that they called them human debris. And the idea is that human debris are these children who have are child are essentially child soldiers or child workers who have no family, and so they are scooped up by the by the low lives of the universe. They are made to get Alea Vignana system stuck in them, and they either become child soldiers or some kind of specific worker. And they don't get paid, but they get shitty rooms. They get shitty room and board and, like, really crappy meals for their trouble. It is... uh, It's basically slavery. It's basically child slavery. And they end up killing their master, so to speak. So, right off the bat, you see these kids who were... you see this, like, band of kids who are molded into child soldiers who were made to... who were made to fight in a way that is not... that A, is not conventional, and B, is not... had no restraint. So, the... One of the things about Gundam... And one of the things about all, like, giant robot fighting anime is that Gundams and Zoids and all of these robots that are piloted have one thing in common. And that is that there is a layer of obscurity between the person fighting and and between the actual fight. And that is the giant robot that you're sitting in. And in the case of something like Zoids, they present it... In Zoids Chaotic Century, they present it as just straight-up warfare, which is really interesting. But in something like... that comes later on, like Zoids New Century Zero, um, or Zoids New Century, I think it's just called, um, which, is a re- which is a really fun show, actually. Um, they present it as a sporting event, and if you aim for the cockpit you are disqualified because that would mean you're attempting to kill your opponent. And in Gundam, oftentimes, people survive. Pe- like, people survive fights and they, get an, and they get an upgraded mobile suit or they get a new Gundam or whatever. And while that happens in this show, the, si- the first thing they do when they show you them using mobile, using mobile workers is that they are, like... Full on, like half of their body out, out the top of this thing, piloted in this thing with no protection and no shirt on, even, and they are going to town on like people in straight up mobile suits, and that is significant because there are all these pilots with like, you know a pilot suit on with protection for, like, their heart and lungs, and a helmet on, and a giant robot, and they're going against these children, and the, the pilots are adults, these children in basically, like, robotic push buggies with no shirt on, and they're just, like, hell-bent for election, laying the smackdown on people. 
And this gives you an idea of how... Of how disadvantaged these till these the members of Tekadin are going forward. Um, and then shortly after they overthrow their captors, they form this kind of ragtag band of mercenaries. They call themselves Tekadin, which stands for Iron Flower. And the idea behind Tekadin is that they will never disappear. They will never fully wilt. And that's where you get the... And that term is ultimately where you get the title for the show, Iron-Blooded Orphans. Because they, they are literally orphans, and they refer to them, their group as Iron Flower. Um, but... And they have, like, a Florida leaf esque logo that is very French re- revolutionary, and it's very interesting. Um, but they are not instantly contracted, but pretty quickly contracted to deliver a young woman that is around their same age named Kegelia Ina Bernstein to Earth. And this is where the show starts to... start to show you kind of the main theme of what of what happens to Tekadin along the way. That and that ultimately is that people come along to these naive, impressionable kids and they take advantage and they take and but they see that they are strong. They feel that, that they are unstoppably strong. And they go and take advantage of that strength for their own gain. Now, I forget at what point in the series, I think shortly after they take take out, or during the time they take out their oppressors, um, I don't say that lightly, I really mean that, they discover and unearth this giant mobile suit. That they that like nobody quite knows what to do with. Mikazuki is like enthralled with, and did nobody knows what to do with. And the thing that's special about Mikazuki is that he is exceptionally good at piloting basically anything within the Leia Vinyata system because he has had this insanely dangerous surgery that you have to perform on like children. I think under the age of 17 might be it. But, um, he had had that surgery since he was a young child done on him three times. Which means that, like, the level of connection he has to the, like, robot's parts is way finer than most people. Now, there's another character who also becomes a Gundam pilot, who has had it done twice, and he and he is considered like an anomaly. <laughs> so Mikazuki is a, a Mikazuki is regarded as a as almost a monster in a room of animals, if that makes any sense. And he is referred to for most of the series as the Devil of Tekadin, because he is so. 
he's so good at piloting a mobile suit that no that no one beats him. I think right up until the end of the show, which we'll get to. Hopefully. Um, we should get to it. I'll skip to it if it's, it feels like I'm wa- waning. But, um... So, Cadelia wants them to deliver her to Earth so she can speak to her grandfather, a guy named Machinai, and he is a big political thing. And... This was more than they ever bargained for because they are, they're, they unwittingly step into a geo... Uh, like... Space op, they step out of this kind of ragtag bunch of punk kids, of punk child soldiers with nothing better to do, and because they need money, they step into this world of like geopolitical space opera bullshit, basically, in which everybody's trying to grab power for themselves. They have to go up against with essentially the force that polices space, which is Gallahorn as well as, like, every man of space pirates, space mafia, all this stuff. And the first, the first section of the show is devoted to getting Cadelia, it's primarily devoted to getting Cadelia to Earth. And then the second section of the show starts. And Cadelia is and by that and by the second by the second season of the show they establish that Cadelia and Mikazuki, Mikazuki have like a thing they 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 have feelings for each other even though Mikazuki doesn't know what that means he is he, he is a really great portrait of what happens when you raise a kid in a vacuum with nothing but violence and Death, um, and the best, the best example of that is the fact that he, in the uh, process of piloting his Gundam, and I find this interesting from a standpoint. You'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. Um, he basically gives too much, like, like he he puts too much into the Gundam. And he and the Gundam was the thing they unearthed, and they 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 don't call them they call them Gundams, but first but the kind of mobile suit they call but when they find them they're all these like dismantled wrecks from three hundred years ago, so they call them Gundam frames, and they outfit them uniquely and all this other stuff, but. His, the first one they find is the one Mikazuki uses, and it's called Barbatos. And Barbatos is has very f- few weapons on it when it's first introduced. All he has is this big-ass, like, iron backhoe that he just, like, wails on people with. Actually, it's like... It's like a four pointed spade almost it's like a stake almost and but it's huge and he just like beats the shit out of people with it it's 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 really from somebody's watched a lot of Gundam and seen the kind of things they tend to do with Gundam weaponry which outside of 
Um, G Gundam tends to mean beam sabers and giant guns. Um, or, like, beam sabers, giant guns, and, like, weird floaty space bullshit. Um, it's really satisfying to see a Gundam, to see not just a Gundam, or not just a mobile suit, but all the mobile suits have material weaponry. So instead of having just a, basically a giant lightsaber, what they call a beam saber, um, and going at it, they have, like, giant machetes, giant rifles, there's a Gundam at some point that has two twin revolvers, there's a Gundam that has these two, like, big gold swords, and it's, it's just really satisfying to see designs with physical weaponry instead of, like, beam sabers where they can, like, whip them out and just do whatever they need to do. But, um, it's really, and it's really interesting to see, like, the pilots have to think about that, have to go back and get their weapon when they, like, stamp it in or, like, pull it out of something instead of just, like, the thing turns off and it turns back on again and you're just dicing through people like a Cuisinart. But Mikazuki, um, I forget what the name of the incident is called, but Mikazuki, in the process of piloting his Gundam, extend, overextends himself, basically. And as a result, he loses full use of his right, of his left arm, I believe. When, but only when he's not hooked up to a Gundam. And the anime does two of the best things. Does one of the best, funniest things with the fact that he has his arm in a sling when he's not piloting. A, he keeps a gun in there because, and and that gives you this foreboding sense of later on when they confront people who have done wrong by Tekken since they, since at some point they join up with this subsidiary group of a group called Tewas, which is a, supposed to be a legitimate business organization, but it's basically the mob. But it's basically the Yakuza, and they grow, they hook up with this group called the Turbans. And they, they basically, they, they join the mob, so they have... A financial lifeline of sorts. And by joining the mob, they can get, you know, repaired, they can get restocked, they can get all these things, they become a subsidiary of a much bigger group, which means less people come after them. Um, and they have the opportunity to rise up the ranks in that group and become more and more powerful. But... I... In the second season of the show, it becomes clear that more and more people are attempting to use them to some end. And in one scene, when they found out this guy, this, like, business asshole, is trying to use them basically to orchestrate a military coup, 
and A, wipes them off the map, and B, sees, it was all an effort to seize power for a member of Gallahorn who's trying to seize power for himself. Um, they confront him, and Mikazuki's sitting there, and he just shoots the motherfucker. He just ices that guy immediately without thought. And the the thing that's driven home for this entire show is that Mikazuki is treated by everybody by everybody who works with him, who hangs out with him as if he's human. But he's treated by other soldiers, by other people who fight as if he's a demon because Instead of taking the sh- the direct opinion that war is bad, which is what most Gundam shows do, this show does that, certainly, but it doesn't do it by saying, you know, war is bad, we should stop war, now let me fight you, so you until you agree to stop war. They show that these kids, that's all they know, and that's all they've ever known. So their way, in their minds, the way to get to where they want to be, which is the place of respect, where they're respected and honored, is to fight their way up the ladder, to kill everybody up on top of them. And this becomes this kind of death wish for... Mikazuki especially, but many of the characters in this show. And Mikazuki, when he first meets Cadelia, they don't understand each other because Cadelia has a very broad, has a very noble goal of trying to eliminate war, and she is the she is the pacifist. She is the pacifist voice for much of this show. And she is saying, you know, war is bad. You you kids don't know anything else. But here, let me teach you how to read and write. And also, war is bad. And Mikazuki's like, you don't know us. You don't you don't know what we've been through. You don't know what we have had to deal with. You don't know why we're like this. You don't understand. And after the either first or whole arc of the first season, Cadelia really understands that because she sees exactly what they're going up against. She sees how many people are out to... are, like, knives out for a bunch of child soldiers trying to get one over on the universe. And people do come knives out for Tekken almost constantly. And there is this, like, there are the constant refrains of these these are just a bunch of punk kids until they're they face this bunch of punk kids in some kind of conflict and then you see them you see their reactions change immediately you see their reactions change from this is a bunch of punk kids to these are monsters <laughs> and either and their their reactions either become spare me or you must be eliminated <laughs> Um, and it, 
this show is ultimately not. I mean, it's a to give you an idea, it's a Mario Kata joint. It is not a. It is not a kind show. It is not necessarily a happy show. It has happy moments and like romantic plot twists, and by the end of this show, there is a happy scene that means that life goes on, but it's not... At some point in the second season, you start to realize that these kids are not going to live through this. They're... They keep dangling things in front of you, like, if they can just do this, they'll live. If they can just do that, they'll live. If they can do this, they'll become sovereigns of Mars and be basically the emperors of a planet that they've, that is their home. And at some point, Orga, who leaves Tekken, becomes obsessed with that, goes after that. That doesn't work out, (laughs) because he, he does that. For his family, which is what um, his who he calls his big brother from the turbans, tells him like you have to make your family happy. Do what will make your family happy. And he become he tries to become the sovereign of Mars. It all falls apart because a it's not really anything he wanted, and b it's. It was something that someone else was doing as a by was causing to happen as a byproduct of what they wanted, and that person was McGillis Farid, who was trying to take he was trying to take control of of Gallahorn, which is the International Space Force, basically, and he manipulated Orga into saying like you could. Like, if I control Gallahorn, I can just make you Sovereign of Mars. And even if that were true, and, and, that, and that, that path was very clearly there, but due to McGillis's, like, big-headedness, or inflated ego... He believes that he would just be able to pull it off. He believes that there were a bunch of rules that would click into place and he would do it. And that, you know, those Tekken kids would get their Sovereign of Mars and it would be fine. But he he would also have them as pawns if need be. And his fuck-up ends up making it so all of Tekken is marked for death. So that... Tekken can be made an example of by the person who ultimately, by the um, person who ultimately gets to control Gallahorn, and there's this real sadness there because it's not. It's a lot like when a rich person said to a poor person, "Why don't you just go get a." Why don't you just go stop being poor in some way? And there's lot and there's lots of ways that people say that. Like, why don't you go eat better? And to an inner city kid who lives in a food desert and he's overweight because all he really has to eat is McDonald's and pig hooves. Or you know, why don't you shop here? Why don't you shop there? Why don't you dress better? A lot of times that 
sentiment comes from a snide, willful ignorance of, you know, well, why don't you just, why don't you just fix yourself? Like, you, you, you can fix yourself. I was able to fix myself. You can fix yourself. And that's not true. And this show gives you the real, gives you the realization of, yeah, these kids are continuously used by adults around them for some end, with the exception of the boss of the, of the, um, of the, um, of the mafia boss who they, who's, the Yakuza boss who they join, who just kind of protects them, which, and this is really interesting, he just kind of protects them and lets them do whatever they deem necessary because he's ultimately the one that uh, profits off it. But even that eventually backfires on them because they go too far in pursuit of another, of a different thing. And... Every time they get to a point at which they have more than they had, and they're making more they're making more money than they made, and they're doing better than they've ever done, someone comes along and says, "I have an opportunity for you. What if I told you you could be the sovereigns of Mars? What if I told you that you didn't just have to be the owners of the biggest you know metal mine on Mars?" You could own, you could run the planet. And a punk kid, a bunch of punk kids, especially one like Orga, who really wants to do right by all of these kids who have been so mistreated for so many years, and his best friend, Mikazuki, and Mikazuki's, like, polyamorous love triangle third, um... Atra and also Cadelia. So, in this show, the the Yakuza branch they sign up with is, and I I love this so much because it's it's presented with no question of eh, it's not a problem. Like somebody brings up like, and this no, it's not a problem. We all share. Um, is a polyamorous relationship with a head of the turbans I forget his name is is I guess technically married and has children by most of them the rest of his crew who are all women and until until that char- until that character and those characters are introduced you have this weird feeling that, like, it's that the romantic relation, the love triangle between Mikazuki, the come to be a love triangle between Mikazuki, um, Kadelia, who loves Mikazuki, and this girl named Atra, who has this, who also loves Mikazuki. And it is a it's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a no-win scenario constantly. Because on one hand, you know, Cadelia is the same age as him, 
which is lost shield and understand. On the other hand, Atra is pretty is a lot younger than Mikazuki, but she understands him and she understands where he's coming from. And they make both relationships really viable. But when they introduce the turbans, they introduce primarily to Atra and then later on to Cadelia this framework that they can have where they can both basically share him as a husband, for for lack of a better concept, uh, and like both be happy and both have kids and like have this big happy family together, basically. And ultimately, Atra. Mothers are child by Mikazuki. Kidelia doesn't doesn't get that chance, and we'll get to that in a second. But th- that that dynamic presented in that way, as if nothing wrong with this, it was kind of a fun thing. It was it was presented as like a like cool, sexy thing. But when they went into detail on it, when they went when they showed the long tail of it and what it really looked like and what it really, why it happened, it was a really interesting, like, reflection on the caring of one person towards a lot of other people, not necessarily gendered, but because the world is gendered, it ha- like, it happened in that way. But, ultimately... Everybody tries to tries to use and abuse Tekken, Cadelia and her later company, and all of these people basically drive Tekken to death. And when I say death, I mean death. Or almost death. I, Orga and... Uh, for the first death, the first and most meaningful... And, and not most meaningful, but most heart-wrenching death is a character named Biscuit. And he's this kind of, like, kind, nice guy who fights, but he's not really about fighting. His name is Biscuit. He likes to eat. He has two sis- he has two little sisters, cookie- twin sisters, Cookie and Cracker. And Biscuit ultimately dies in the conflict, in the major conflict in the first season. And... After Biscuit dies, the tone starts to change and it starts to be about keeping people alive and if people die as a result, the people who killed them will pay. It starts to be less about win at all costs and more about preservation of lives of the lives of my family members at all costs. If we win, so be it. And ultimately, in the final episodes of this show, what that turns out to mean is that because McGillis Farid's plan had the bottom drop out of it, ultimately, they are marked for death by the space police, by um, Gallahorn. And they are marked for death because the new supreme le- the new democrat like supreme leader of Galahorn who's this like evil asshole needs to make a statement needs to say these types of forces will not stand 
we will not stand for them. And he acts, and they call it out loud on the news, a mop-up operation on Tekken. He sends in every mobile suit they have to wipe out a tribe of child soldiers in the most one-sided way possible. They rig it so it doesn't look one-sided. But ultimately, they do they it is one-sided but in the process of that you know Takadin is not wise to that they try and they get out of it which results in Orga being shot and killed family style by like a, a drive-by style like a real gangster move situation and Mikasa and, and Mikazuki at this point, has given so much in fighting in his Gundam that he can't move his entire left side. Which, like, in a world, in a world where giant robots reign supreme and they have ti- and they have car-sized robot tractors, they can't seem to find this kid a fucking motorized wheelchair. Which, it just, like... They they do it for effect, and they do it to give Mikazuki this, like, soulless husk quality when he's not hooked up to the Gundam. And it's a really interesting thing, but it's just, like, it's so weird, because it's so... It's not played for laugh, but it's hysterical, because he has, like, an underling of his carry him or like lift him up and put him on his back like a sack of potatoes. Doesn't even have him put him face first. Just has him, like, put him over his back and his face behind the guy. It's it's really out there and hysterical because, like, of, of course, motherfucker. God damn it. But Mikazuki ultimately dies fighting with his Gundam. And, but the way he dies... The and the character who finishes him sees in him what she thought she wanted, and I forget her name, but she's this like up and coming, like Gallahorn member who's working under Russell, who it is the evil mastermind who eventually wins and takes control of Gallahorn, and she thinks she wants to be stronger, as strong as possible, and then she sees what that looks like. And she sees what kind of person that molds somebody into. And she realizes that she wants to be stronger, but she wants to retain her humanity. And she also realizes that the reason that everyone is so afraid of these punk child soldier, ragtag group of child soldiers, is not because they're not human, it's not because... The dude in the big, in the big scary skeleton Gundam is gonna get you, and his name is the Devil of Tekken. It's because they express themselves through fighting, and because they express themselves through fighting, they fight in a way that is not what anyone else is used to. And ultimately, what ends up happening is 
Tekken is obliterated. It's it, it, it not obliterated. It Members escape, they get new identities, and they go to work for Cadelia, who becomes the Prime Minister of Mars. So in, an, so in essence, they become the sovereigns of Mars. And Cadelia wears, the, interestingly enough, wears the, and symbolically, wears the Tekadin logo as, a cust- as custom earrings to work every day. And her assistants are former Tekadin members former Tekken members who escaped and survived. And she does everything she can to prevent a group like that from happening again. And she consi- and she doesn't just consider them all family. To her, all of them are family. And the, you find out later, the reason why they are family is because... And she makes a result, a, a comment after she takes a trip to sign a, to sign a treaty abolishing human debris, which is what the members of Tekadin were, and the reason why they all have the Alea Vignana system, um, why most of them have the Alea Vignana system surgically implanted in them. Um, she, when, after she does that trip and she deals with, um, with Russell Elion, who is the head of Gallahorn, who is the democratically elected head of Gallahorn, at that point, she says, you know, I'd really like to go home. I haven't been home in forever. <laughs> and you're like, where's home? Where's home? Because up until that point, they've never showed her as belonging a place. So it's a really interesting, like, now that she's an adult, she has a place to belong. You think, like, is she going back to the Tekken base and it's just, like, a big apartment where they all live? No. She goes back to a farm. And throughout this whole show, Mikazuki was was always only interested in one other thing, and that was farming. He would... And, and like, farming for food and stuff like that, like, useful farming. And Cadelia goes home to that farm, and she says hi to Atra, who is now grown up. And Atra... and, And then she says hi to Atra... And Mikazuki's kid. And it's this bittersweet, beautiful thing because Mikazuki died. And but before he died, he had the foresight because not necessarily because he was planning on dying, but because he was at that point so disabled that without without being hooked up to a Gundam front to his Gundam, he couldn't complete the job of parenting, he asked Cadelia to look after his kid. And now that she's the Prime Minister of Mars and he's gone, she does. And that they and they are and her Akasuki, which is the name of the kid, and Atra are a family unit. And if you look up um the kid's name, it is Akasuki I think it was in the most Gundam move ever. August Mixtra Bernstein. And that is all of their names just jammed into one big long line. And it's it's this really 
Iron-Blooded Orphans isn't a happy show. If you're looking for, like, a, like, raucous good time where everybody comes out okay all the time, this is not your show. It's not, but it's not even a show where it proposes morals to the way people live. It's a show that that has characters in world propose those morals and then starts to take a pin and pokes holes in them. Pokes one hole at a time until it's Swiss cheese. And it its purpose isn't to make you upset or to make you necessarily sad. I mean, once again, it is a Mario Kata script, so it's um, what's the word? Emotionally, emotionally manipulative as fuck is the, is the term I think I'm looking for. But um, Mario Kata is like a step below Makoto Shinkai in the in the emotional manipulation territory. But um, it I think what it's trying to do is it's trying to say that there are ways people live that other people can't understand, and it's not about understanding, it's about accepting. And it's about accepting that these kids were trying to do whatever they could to move their lives forward, because for so much of their lives, they had been held in place by the world around them. So if And the world around them still wanted to hold them in place. So if they ever got an opportunity to step to take the next step forward, they would take it and they would take it running. And it would it just it's a really interesting show because it's not not about being sad the character died. Character died knowing they were going to die. Uh, the 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 character died doing what they thought would move them forward in the world. Uh, the thing that makes Biscuit's death so tragic is because it happened so early in the show and because it was so... It, was, it had such an abruptness, and Orga's was similar to this, but it had such an abruptness. It had such a... What's the word? It had such a needlessness to it. And none of these kids had to die, and that's the thing. It's like, none of them had to die. You could have gone gone to... Russell could have gone to these kids and said, Look, I have every mobile, I have every mobile suit I, that my troop has surrounding your base. You can either die... Or you can take these fake IDs and you can leave. And we'll blow up the base and it'll look like you're dead. But he killed them. And other people killed these kids. They did everything they could to fight to stay alive. And the world denied them that right. So... In the end, in the final moments of this show, this uh, the characters who live on past Biscuit and Orca and Mikazuki and the buff dude with the 
Tualea Vinyanas do everything they can to prevent that situation from framing up again. And you think, oh, you like this is kind of done. But there's lots of justice yet to be paid and lots of people we don't know what happened to. And they show the turbans and they show the Tewas, which is the mob, those are the mob groups. And they show what happens to them and all that other stuff. But there's still a loose end, motherfucker. Son of a bitch who shot, or- who shot Orga. And it, when Orga gets shot, he gets shot because he's protecting this, like, young upstart kid who is, like, who is the leader of the youth core of Tekken, which means all the kids, like, under 13. But he vanishes after this is all over. Nobody knows where he is. And he takes a couple other people with him. Like, they just fucking vanish. And Katelia's like, have we found them yet? Because they're family, and, like, we always look out for family. And everybody's like, right, we'll keep looking. And they say, like, every time we get close, they seem, it seems like they intentionally avoid us. And you find out that they go into that motherfucker who killed Orca business, and they fucking ice him on the toilet along with all of his bodyguards, and they just fucking banish. And that moment is, A, the most satisfying asshole get-and-got moment I've seen in a while, but B, it drives home what happens what happened to these kids and what they ended up being shaped by, because you you notice in this show that all the people who made it through and became quote-unquote functional adults were either entering adulthood at the time that this all happened, or they were so young that it didn't really take root and their brains can be rewired, almost. These kids were like 14, 15, like they were impressionable, they learned a way of doing things, and they saw injustice in the world, and they knew they could pick up a gun and correct it. And that's a really, and it's a really powerful thing. Lots of gangs use that to manipulate kids into joining them, like initiation and bullshit. And that gives you a direct example of what Cadelia is trying to affect with the treaty she signs and why she signs it the way she signs it and with the person she signs it who she like absolutely fucking disdained because they killed because this guy is responsible for the de- for basically the death of the father of her child of her and her wife's child and she's just like, ah, you know, and he, and, he rem- and he remarks on her earrings and she's like, it's a symbol of my family. And you wouldn't know anything about that. And you get this like subtextual thing of like, you wouldn't know anything about that because you fucking killed them all, you piece of shit. And he walks away and he goes like, and 
his second in command, the girl who stared down, uh, who, who killed Mikazuki, basically, who did basically kill him, but killed him. He says, like, you're just gonna let her walk? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> it's real interesting. I, but you also get the sense that, like, he doesn't wanna, he doesn't wanna go down that path. Because the thing about Cadelia for the entire show is that she is a symbol of peace that people just don't fuck with. And she has all this political clout, which is why she ultimately becomes the Prime Minister of Mars. But it just... The whole thing is really... has this melancholy sigh at the end of it. Where it presents you with a happy picture, but it's not a complete one. It, but it, And while it's not a complete one, it feels like a realistic one. And that is... All I've got. Look, it's not, it's not, a, not a short show. It's a normal-sized show. Oh my god. Um, well, on that note, I have been Alex. Um, you've been listening to Lunchbox Radio. Uh, feel free to like my podcast and subscribe to it on whatever podcasts area you choose to dine at. And give me a five-star review. And don't forget, I'm giving two panels at... At Liberty City Anime Convention on the 18th, which is this Saturday. Um, the first one is Mommy and Daddy Hate You, terrible, bad anime parenting. And the second one, and that is at 1 o'clock in panel room 3, I believe. And the second one is Full Metal and Beyond, an exploration of disability anime. And that's at 6 o'clock in panel room 4, I believe. And I will talk to you next time. Can you